Welcome back to the Content Lab Holiday Week Edition. And uh, I was volunteered by my my intrepid co-host, Impact Revenue and Features Editor, John Becker, because clearly I'm the one in the festive mood to introduce us, which is hurtful, John. Everybody should be in the festive mood. I could just see so much festivity when I looked at you. That That's what I saw. So, You know, you're one of the few Americans I've met who can have that, like, impeccable British capability of saying things that sound so polite, like to the ear, they sound pleasing. But then when you think about it, you go, wait, was that an insult? Was that like mm. a backhanded compliment? Because I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. No, I'm kidding. So wait, so I, I, I will admit this is like my favorite time of the year. I am 100% the target demographic for uh stores who like start putting up christmas stuff like on november 1st it's like boom that like i am that person and i'm okay with that like i made peace with my holiday gods a very long time ago like one of my favorite things about getting into my 30s is the fact that like you're just super comfortable with who you are and this is i embrace that do i watch hallmark movies yeah it happens regularly often like (laughs) it's just the way i am you have uh christmas peaceful piano like the Spotify playlist, which plays pretty much all weekend long. And it is like, it is the most calming and and just, it, it, it's amazing. It, it's so nice. It's like all the classics, but it's not Bing Crosby. It's just like peaceful piano, very, very calming, very nice, very festive. So when we're like, you know, decorating or baking cookies or that kind of thing, nonstop. Yeah, then it gets a little you- tedious and, and, you, and you turn it off, but uh, it's really nice. So how are you guys getting into the festive spirit over there in the, in the quarantine times? I think we're doing, uh, is that a how, like good or bad, or how are we actually, how are we doing? I think we're doing quite well. Uh, what are we doing? I don't know. You know, kind of the standard stuff, making presents, buying presents, wrapping stuff up, spending time together. Um it's uh, it's kind of like a hectic time of year. It's it's really busy, but it is really really nice. Um, sending out Christmas cards, you know, that kind of stuff. I sent you a Christmas card, Liz. I know I got it today, and it's gorgeous. And I sent out mine, but nobody can see this because it's an audio podcast. But I'm just going to show you the Christmas card you're getting, and I want to record the reaction because I'm so pleased. <laughs> what does it say? Stay merry, what? Lessers. <laughs> I will put a picture of it in the show notes, but um, my alter ego is my eight pound cotton ball cat uh, named Pumpkin, who for, she is the sweetest cat, but she is known at the office for like loitering on my calls and looking at people like she will straight up stab them in the street, like the minute they turn their head. Like, I don't know what it is about her face, but she just has that face. And she's so sweet. She's aggressive with her approach to snuggling, but it's a lot. So I'll, I'll put that in the show notes. But um, yeah, I'm getting festive over here too. I'm excited. Uh, I'm a little nervous. So I live alone and um, I don't have family in the area and clearly travels out of the question. So right now my big plans uh, are on Christmas Eve. I'm going to order in Peking duck, which is like my favorite thing. And I never order it. And then I'm going to watch Die Hard one and two. Although I'm, I'm a contrarian. 
I actually prefer Die Hard 2 over Die Hard 1. Even though Hans Gruber's in the original and I love Alan Rickman and I think he's flawless and it's amazing. I just find Die Hard 2 much more compelling. Those are I know favorite. one much better. So I would have to watch two a couple more times before I weigh in, mm-hmm. but um, I could see it. it. Takes place I in an airport. It. It's a lot of fun. There's lots of explosions. It's a good time. I, I think he stabs someone in the eye with an icicle. I do remember that part. Yes, he does. Just the way Santa intended. (laughs) Just to get in the holiday spirit. I know. Speaking of the holiday spirit, flawless transition. Let's talk about interviewing subject matter experts and creating content from it. Everybody's favorite Yuletide activity. That's right. (laughs) So anyway, uh, now that I've just completely fallen face first in that segue... I wanted to talk to you today about an article that we just recently published where you talk about how content managers or digital marketers who interview subject matter experts for content, you talk about how they might be doing it wrong. And what I mean by that is, or what you intended by that is, you know, we have these interviews, we sit down and then we present the information that we get out of those interviews but it's not always effective. So I wanna walk down this road with you a little bit today about what it means to ineffectually present content that you've created from subject matter expert interviews versus doing it correctly. Sound good? Yeah, I I think to me, it starts with a, a kind of reorientation of the way we think about content creation, maybe the way we think about content management. And it's something that I went through as I was cutting my teeth and and figuring my way through my job, which is, I think we need to think of that role and that process more as as sort of, you know, communication professionals and not just, it's easy to think that you're just kind of uh, someone who goes and gets something that um, you have to go and talk to a, a subject matter expert and get their opinions and then just dump that into content. And I think that's a flawed way of looking at it because it, it minimizes your role. Um, and it also leads to, I don't know, feeling like what you're doing doesn't matter or, or isn't important or um, that your contribution is, is ineffective in the overall process or ineffectual. And so I was thinking about it instead as um, sort of like a, almost like a communications manager and that, and that you've been trusted by your company in shaping and crafting and um, organizing the information that your company puts out to the world, whether that's uh, in this case specifically like blog content, Um, but it could be more broad with website copy or or other things, email copy. And the more you trust yourself to uh, look at the role that way, the more I think you allow yourself to bring your voice and to bring your personality to the content you produce. You know, there, there are a couple of things that came to mind. I remember when I first read this article, one of the lines that really jumped out to me is, is the question that we're really answering today. How do you present the information you've gotten from your subject matter experts in a way that doesn't make you feel like a lackey middleman without a mind of your own? And I love that because I remember when I first started out as a content manager, that was always really draining. Like I was basically the platform for other people's voices. And am I just here to be like a, a the word version of a button pusher, right? Mm-hmm. Like you hire the graphic designer to, to design the thing because you can't just do it yourself. 
The other piece of that though, is that it ends up being a win-win situation for everybody. And I, and I want to bring up a, an instance we had, I would say a few months ago when we were doing a content brainstorm with our sales team. And one of the things we do is we not only get net new ideas for new pieces of content to create, we also challenge them to take a look at the stuff that's already been published and tell us, you know, how can we make it better? And there was some transition before John had come on in his role. And when we were initially standing up this revenue content strategy, we had different people who were helping with those interviews. And they said, you know, honestly, the answers are in this article. And it was written more like a Q&A style because they're different styles. Like you can create a, a like a here's the question. Here's the answer style of piece of content. Or you can ghostwrite or you can do a number of different things. But the thing is, is that when you just kind of regurgitate everything out, you end up with a piece of content that often is not a good experience for the user either. So I think it's really important to understand that when you are a content manager, this isn't just about like empowering you to feel like you're not just the lackey middleman. That's true. You have to understand that just like you said, John, you are a communications manager. You have been trusted not only to take these insights, but to shape them in the best form possible. That is what your skill sets are. That's where we really want to push people because the sales team said like, this is not usable. This Q and a format is completely dense. It's not skimmable. Like this is not something anyone will ever read. I had to go searching for the answer. And that's yeah. not something we ever want to create. I think, you know, I think there are a few that could certainly happen just based on format. Like something that's a Q and a might be less digestible unless it, it tends to be very kind of quick, short answers. Um, but it can also be the way that that people speak, you know, one of the people that I interview, a company leader that I interview pretty regularly, he's just, he's very smart. He's very well-spoken, but for whatever reason, he's not very quotable and, and he'll say something. Um, he'll speak in metaphor. He'll kind of skip around. Um, he's funny and he'll kind of throw in humor. So when I get back a, a recording or a transcript from that, I have my work cut out for me because there's so much that is said beneath the surface, or there's so much that's implied, or there's so much that is jumbled throughout the entire piece or the entire transcript. Um, you know, I'm not doing anyone a favor if I just present that and share that with, you know, with an audience. No one's going to read it. No one's going to be able to get the same thing out of it that um, that the person intended. And in the article that um, that you mentioned, Liz. I use an example actually from, from you where I, I interviewed you and we all know how smart and well-spoken. Loquacious and, uh, is a word maybe. you are. Loquacious, I'll give you loquacious. Um, oh, Jesus. Well, loquacious doesn't- Go on. Just... Okay, anyway. Um, <laughs> and the, the idea is, I feel like, lo well, I feel like loquacious, isn't it named after a region of Greece? Am I making it? Is. I think that's, I think that's all right. We got but, it. All right. Etymology of loquacious is now on my to-do list. We'll, we'll look it up. Um, but in any case, I, I use this example where I interviewed you and Will Schultz, another one of our team members about the process of onboarding a content manager. And um, this is an article we can, we can link to um, as mm -hmm. well. But uh, the transcript that I got back from that, once I, I had it, uh, we use a, a a survey service called Rev, um, and we use their AI transcriber. So they're, it's it's cheap and it's fast. Um, but the transcript that I got back from that 
was 5,978 words. So like, there's a ton of stuff in there. Um, and, you know, ultimately of those 5,978 words, just about a hundred made it into my, the article that I wrote. Like my, my big point in this article is that when we're quoting, like quoting isn't a very, sometimes it's useful, but like paraphrasal is way more useful. So, so to take what I heard and to put it into my own words to kind of organize it in a different way is ultimately way more useful for the reader. And um, I think it, it more accurately represents what your subject matter experts are saying. So what I do in the article is I take like a chunk from the transcript and then I like show which parts I quoted and which parts I cut and which parts I paraphrased and then show what it looks like in the final copy. Yeah, and that's what's wild to me. I mean, let's just, for the sake of argument, let's say people are like, John, Liz, you just, you two are so amazing, but I'm not gonna go into the show notes and click this link. To be very clear, this article started with an interview where you interviewed me and Will. The interview yielded a 5,978 words of just loquaciousness. I don't know what wordiness. There are lots and lots of words. You, you quoted 109 words and everything else was trimmed and or paraphrased, meaning that you only used 1.8% of the transcribed words in that article, which is just wild to me. So let me ask you this, because if I'm hearing this and I'm hearing this and hearing like, so I'm literally going to spend like 20 minutes with someone, I'm going to get 6,000 words back and only a hundred of them are going to be like useful. Are those other, like, is that a waste of time? Is it that like you need to have those 6,000 words of nonsense in order to get to the hundreds that are useful? Like what is the purpose of those interviews if you're going to be using so little of it literally? Yeah, that's a great question. It's one of the reasons that I advocate for interviews to be short. I think there's a tendency sometimes to think an interview needs to be half an hour, it needs to be like 40 minutes or something. I think it needs to be 10 to 15 minutes. Um, otherwise, you're going to end up with just way more and, and, and just a lot of digression. And it's going to be too broad for whatever you're talking about. I guarantee it, unless you're really addressing something that's like a pillar. And even in that case, I would try to break it down into smaller interviews. Um, of course, people are going to go, um, you know, in different directions. It's going to take turns that you might not expect. And that's part of it. Um, you know, and the role of the interviewer, and Liz, you obviously know this so well from, from your work also, the role of the interviewer is as you always say, like you have to build rapport, you have to um, make the person enjoy what they're what they're doing in the whole process while kind of steering them where you think they need to go. But you can't be the cop who's like, you know, just the facts, ma'am. Uh, could you stick to the night of the 17th? You know, you can't, all of that kind of background, sometimes it really matters. And, and here's like the, the trickiest part is like, those 109 words that I quoted are, they're not, you know, they're, who knows where they're gonna be in that transcript. And that's 
that's kind of the hardest part. Like they're going to be these great nuggets, these wonderful turns of phrase. Um, and I mean, that that's your work to take a, a bundle that feels kind of messy and uh, put some order to it and, and organize it in such a way that it's really digestible for, um, for your audience. I kind of use the personality where it's like, I can't find my lip balm until I dump my entire bag out all over my kitchen table. Like I have to have everything <laughs> in order to find the thing I need. Yeah. Um, the other thing I will say too, is that I think what a lot of people don't realize is that like your goal, it's not success to get people to just regurgitate everything that you need to put on paper. That's why, that's why we talk about like what you said, like, it's not about being the lackey middleman your goal as a content manager is to look at all that stuff and to synthesize it and to find the story. The other thing too, I will say is that like, I always go into interviews with probably just a few questions. Like I have in my head, like the overall, usually when I have an interview, I'm like, I pretty much know the structure that I want to hit. And these are kind of the questions I want to pepper in there. But really the beauty of, of what you get out of people is in the follow-up. And that means you need to have those like, you know, meandering stories, those initial answers in order to push the follow-up to get it where you need to need me. But you're not going to know all the time until some, somebody's words come out of their mouth. So that's interesting. When you prep, do you have, and I'll, I'll say how I do it too in a minute, but do you have any of those follow-ups ready or like, to, are, are those in your head? Are they on paper? Like almost like branching logic. Like if they answer yes, we're going to ask this as a follow-up. If they answer no, I'm going to ask this. I usually have a few in my head and it gets a little bit easier over time as you learn the subjects that you're interviewing. At, like, as you know, like you've gotten really, really great with certain subject matter experts because you interview them constantly. And I have similar ones too, where maybe I'm not interviewing them all the time, but I know them pretty well. So I have kind of mental branching logic in my head. Um, mm -hmm. What I've essentially trained myself is there are a couple of stock follow-ups that I like to have, which is, can you give me a specific example of that? sub follow-up. That's not specific enough. Can we try again? <laughs> um, what do you mean by that? What makes you say that? And my favorite is, okay, let's try that again, but with human words. <laughs> um, so there are a couple, it, 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 but now granted my interview style is not everybody's interview style. And I, I can probably get away with some of those things because of the rapport I've built over time, which we've talked about before. And also it's just my personality to be kind of a goober and say things like, so let's try that again, but with like people words. Um, but really it's about a matter of training yourself to never just accept an answer at face value. So I don't, to answer your question, no, I typically do not have those follow-ups written down in my head, but I've trained myself to listen for gaps for to listen for things that sound like stock answers. Um, like another one of my favorites is that, so I hear other people use that language a lot. I want you to explain it to me the way you talk about it. Hmm. Or my other one, which I always encourage you to do is when somebody gives me an answer, I like to say things like, if you're concerned, for example, about being too brash and abrasive, like I can't sound like Liz in an interview, 
one of my favorite follow-up techniques is, okay, so let's pretend I'm not me. Let's pretend I'm somebody else, someone you're trying to sell to. And if I were to turn around and say, that sounds great, but I don't believe you, what would you say? Hmm. Or let's pretend I'm so-and-so. And you know this objection in your head. You're trying to get them to like get off the party line and start saying something real. That is a really great follow-up technique is let's pretend this is a conversation with a real prospect. And I were to say, that sounds too good to be true. Or give me a real example of that. Or what if something goes wrong? It's all contextualized within the topic, but that's how I usually craft those follow-ups. Yeah. Hmm. And something that I've said on here before, and I think it bears repeating because I don't think I knew it when I said it, but, but now I'm kind of more aware of it, which is when I write questions for an interview, I almost always send them to the person I'm interviewing in advance. Um, pretty much always. I can't really think of a time that I don't. Um, and I think that puts them at ease. I think that makes them feel more comfortable about a process. There are some people, like you said, that I interview very frequently and then it's less of, a, of an issue. But uh, I will almost always read the first question as normal. And then I will almost always follow up with a question that's not on the sheet. And not in a way that's like a, you know, a, a gotcha, but in a way that gives them the, the feeling that this shouldn't be scripted uh, and that they have to kind of be on their toes. Again, not in a defensive way, but, but just in a way that there's a reason we do an interview. I could just write questions and you could write answers as the subject, but then there's no life to it. There's no spirit to it. And like you said, it, it's so easy to get stock questions and it's also, so, or stock answers. And it's also so easy to be satisfied by those. Um, and the right follow-ups allow you to go deeper. I love that. I love our little tangent about interviewing today. I also love when we have these moments in the podcast where it's like, wait, I just want to ask you this question because I'm curious how you do it. And it has nothing to do with our <laughs> audience. And honestly, for the people listening in those moments, we don't care about you, but we hope you learn something. Um, I always think it's fascinating how people have their different styles of interviewing at some point we're going to have, I'm going to put a pin in this because we will, I will easily like take us off on a tangent that will just go on forever. But I want to take a step back for a moment. You know, you and I have talked about our different styles as interviewers. And I think that comes back to this larger idea of what people think a content manager is supposed to do and what we actually do. Um, because I feel like this conversation we're having about how, you know, you and I have been empowered to find our own styles with interviewing and how we work with people and like verbally shake them until they give us what we want. Um, but that comes down to the fact that one day you and I both woke up and realized what our job was actually supposed to be. Hmm. So what I'd love to ask you with that big meandering exposition is what it's like that meme, what people think I do versus what we actually do. So what do people who are new to content management or who are digital marketers who have to work with content managers or have to dabble in the, what do they think it is versus what it is actually? Yeah, that's interesting. It's a nice way of putting it. Um, you know, and to me, I, I think it's sort of goes back to what we said before that I think there's the, the misconception that it, a content manager can be a kind of go-between, you know, like go get this answer. 
you know, go get their opinion, go get, um, and it's, it's, there's so much more to it than that, because again, people don't speak the way they, you want them to, they don't answer questions the way they should. They might speak in, in expositional paragraphs that are, you know, dense or meandering or, or both. Um, and, you know, it's, the ability to kind of be be the wordsmith who um, who shapes something, and sometimes that that's minor. You know, sometimes those 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 adjustments are minor. But I know, uh, like when I'll be asked to look at website copy, or or be asked to look at um, you know an email or landing page or something, it's often like small little tweaks that that. Uh, they might feel, I think, really easy for us because we do this all the time. We edit all the time. Um, but the difference between like a sentence said poorly and a sentence said well is uh, is night and day. And and I used to be an English teacher, as I, I say here frequently, and I, I would always tell my students, you can't write a good paper without writing good sentences. And uh, sometimes it, it's it's the minutia of, of punctuation, of word choice, of structure um, of like microstructure, like structuring a sentence that that's what the whole article or the whole page or the whole whatever it is turns on. And sometimes our hand, uh, you know, we have a light hand or we're kind of kind of behind the curtain and, and it's, it's easy to kind of mistake what we do. But all of those little tweaks matter in the messaging that your company puts out there. What do you think is the most common thing people get wrong about what you do, John? Like if you were to ask your subject matter experts right now that you interview, do you think they would have a good grasp on how it all comes together? I think as an editor, um, our, our team or our, our broad team, our company will often say, could you help me just make this sound better? And, uh, Sometimes it's hard to put into words because it's hard to know what you're actually asking for. Just like a, a politician, I talk about politics, not politics, but I talk about, um, you know, the White House as a communications team. Politicians have speechwriters, and the way that usually works is the politician says, like, okay, well, these are some like the big points I want to hit. Here, take it, make it into a speech. You know how I talk. You know, like, the tone that's right for the occasion write in some jokes, write in some rhetoric, write in some like good examples or statistics, like whatever it is and make sure I hit these points. And if there's a, a, a healthy amount of trust between the two parties, then that's like a really beautiful synthesis. It can go wrong, but that's how it usually works. And you'll read, if you ever read about how people write speeches or how that like whole process works, it's fascinating. Like all these like great famous political speeches that we think of, they're obviously written by speechwriters. They're obviously written by rhetoricians who are really well skilled in how you craft language. There are some presidents who are more naturally eloquent or more naturally uh, aware of what it takes to write a good speech and some who are less, but ultimately it's written by a bunch of essentially like content managers and communication directors who take the message, stay on brand and get it out in a way that's 
really digestible for the audience. I think that that is a skill that is often overlooked. And I think one of the keys to not feeling like a lackey middleman is to realize what a gift it is to be able to do that for somebody else. And I'll tell a story to say what I mean. So um, They Ask You Answer published its second edition last year. What few people know is that I actually wrote one of the chapters start to finish. It was not written by Marcus. It was a new chapter. Um, And not only that, it was a chapter where I had to go talk to somebody else to get the information I needed for the chapter. Mm. What's interesting about it is that meant I not only had to write like Marcus, I also had to think like him because in order to ethically make the quotes work, I had to craft questions in the voice of Marcus. Did you wear a Marcus disguise? Yes, I shaved my head. No, it was fun. So, but here's the best part. Success to me is the fact that I've had people try to guess which chapter it is and nobody has come back with the right answer yet. Love it. Not a single person. And I think one thing that people need to realize, and and I'm going to balance this with another piece of advice that I've been giving you recently, is that it is a gift to be able to do something like that. It is a gift to be able to take someone really stinking smart and to synthesize all their stuff and to make it something that is digestible and easy to understand that answers the questions of your ideal buyers. The thing is, however, is that it is a a diminishing return for yourself because as you get good at sounding like other people, you get further and further away from your own voice and you want to ask yourself, so, so what am I bringing to the table? So what I would recommend, and I do this with John now, is that once a month, and this, this article that we've been talking about is a product of that, well, John, why don't you put it in your words? Because I've forced this assignment on you. No, you said it. That's exactly right. You've encouraged me to not get too lost in the work that I am mostly doing, which is taking other people's thoughts, synthesizing them, presenting them in an effective way, interviewing people, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and to you know, take ownership, remember my voice and, and my writing style and to sound like myself and not hide behind any of the other people that uh, I'm either interviewing or ghostwriting for or um, who are helping me produce the content. Yep, and once a month, you have to give me an article written in your voice. That's right, this is, uh, and this is the December version. Yeah. yeah, so that is my big piece of advice to you is you know, hear what John said. You know, Start finding your voice, your style. You know, you have been trusted with this and take that seriously, but also go out of your way to write for yourself as yourself with your ideas. You know, you're going to spend all this time with all of these experts rattling around your brain, giving you all the goods. So what can you write about once a month that is purely in your style with your stories, your voice? Um, maybe it's a summary of the lessons you've learned. Maybe it's the biggest, if you're a new content manager, maybe it's the biggest surprises from your first hundred days, your first year. Like what are the big things that you've learned that surprised you about the industry? It could be any number of things, but you do have to force yourself to do that because it, 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 it will not only give you that confidence back and reminding yourself that you have a voice. You, you got to do it. You got to be able to dust off the cobwebs. 
I remember like after working with Marcus on that book for what was it like four months, I like forgot how to write like myself. And I kept saying things like specifically so as to, you know, all of the little like Marcusisms that like leak in. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. I see. Oh, I, I do. So, <laughs> two, you know, two things that, that uh, two things to say. One is, and I don't want to say that this is necessarily true because I've read this, but I can't verify. But supposedly those like very well-named fiction writers who are well-known fiction writers who like churn out book after book after book, that those are usually ghostwritten. A hundred percent. We have someone who yeah. works for us who has a book to her credit on the New York Times bestseller list that she ghost wrote. Wow. I might ask you about that off the air. Mm-hmm. And the second thing is there's um, a book called You Can't Go Home Again by Thomas Wolfe. And uh, in it, he, he's like a, he's a young struggling writer. It's from about a hundred years ago. And he uses the analogy of a writer is, is like a boxer in that like that writer has some kind of skill that got them into the ring in the first place. Maybe they've got like a great right hook. They've got like something and you can learn the other parts of boxing. You can learn like the footwork. You can learn how to like round out your, your repertoire of tools, but you can't lose that one right hook. Like you can't lose that like really strong skill that got you there, whether that's, you know, your humor, your ability to like uh, description or make connections or any, whatever it is. Uh, you can't lose that part of your voice. And it's, it's easy, as you said, Liz, the more you're writing for others to lose that thread of your own voice. You and I have talked about a lot of different things today. We've talked about percentage of words used. We've talked about interviewing styles and follow-up questions and the purpose of a speech writer and not feeling like the middleman. This is a, this is a comprehensive topic. And I could imagine being someone listening right now and saying like, what am I supposed to take away from all this? Like, this is all fascinating, but it feels patchworky. What is the one thing that you want someone to walk away from this conversation understanding today that ties that all together? I think that that your job is not parroting, it's it's synthesizing. You know, you're, you're not someone who's just cutting and pasting other people's thoughts into a, a blog editor. Um, you know, you're whatever you get from a, a subject matter expert, your job is to quote what you need to quote, paraphrase what you need to paraphrase, and throw away the rest. And your style and your your tastes and your instincts are essential for that. Um, I think going back to that initial example of 6,000 words and uh, I quoted a, a hundred of them, you anyone else might have quoted a hundred different ones, but I kind of don't think so. Like I, I think you probably would have picked some of the same ones and and um, we have the the ability to to notice and to and to be able to kind of broadcast when language is really strong and when you find it you know and like you know how, how um malcolm gladwell has that thing where he talks about like 
you have to spend 10,000 hours doing something to like get good at it. 10,000 hours, like 10,000 hours. Like that's the, that's the threshold. And I used to say like to, to students, like you, you know that feeling of when you look at someone who's good at something, do it. And like, you don't even have to know a lot about that thing to just know that they're good at. Like if someone has like spent 10,000 hours playing basketball, like, you know, you can tell it like the second they pick up a basketball. Yeah, it's Stephen like when you Curry. watch like, what's that? I said, they're Stephen Curry. They're Scotty Pippen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you just, you just see it. You see that like, there's no faking that. Um, and like we have as content managers, like you've spent a lot of time, I'm assuming writing and reading and like when you pick up words, that skill is just like immediately apparent to the people who read what you write or at least it should be. I love that. Basically we're awesome. Content managers are great. Digital marketers who are also forced to do content. Dude, I have a special place in my heart for you because I know that is difficult. For all you business leaders out there who happen to be listening, please do not look at your content managers as parrots. There's a lot of work that goes into what we do. excited <laughs> you know we have to leave this in now john are you oh, trying boy. to ask me what i want to teach people this week yes i'm in learning corner you i'm welcome that was what i was going for like i so feel if welcome this were in an interview corner. i would use two of these words <laughs> we have to leave this all okay all right so welcome to learning corner everybody so this comes out of a funny little experience i had uh, last week or early this week. I don't know. Time is a social construct and quarantine and everything just feels like one really long day. So at some point recently, I read an article where someone began a sentence with for all intensive purposes. So today's learning quarter is for all of you well-meaning people out there who say for all intensive purposes, it is actually for all intents and purposes. Not intense, like something is very intense. It's, you know, like you have intent and you have purpose. So I wanted to explain a little bit about what this means and where it comes from, because it's actually kind of interesting because I was very curious. I'm always curious where idiomatic phrases come from. And this is one of those little idioms that's been around forever. And I really mean it because it actually originally comes from 16th century English law. And the original phrase was, to all intense constructions and purposes. And then the shorter version for all intents and purposes became more popular. The reason why it was used in law is essentially what they were trying to do was create clauses where whatever the thing is that is supposed to apply 
is supposed to apply broadly across the board in different circumstances, like any of the basic circumstances or situations you could think of, this thing applies. And that's what it really means. So it's for all intents and purposes. You're essentially saying this is virtually or in every practical sense applicable. But there are no intensive purposes. There are no intensive porpoises. I always imagine like a porpoise with like a monocle and they're thinking. It's intents and purposes. And thus concludes Learning Corner. Woo! That's fantastic. All right. I love those, you know, that, that they're, and I, I know I'm sure I get some of them wrong where it's like everyone thinks it is one way because they hear it and they never see it written. And then they write it and they feel like foolish. I love that. One of my favorite idioms is it bears repeating. And I always imagine a long line of identical bears standing next to each other. I love that. There's um, Flannery O'Connor's first novel was called The Violent Bear It Away. The Violent Bear It Away, which is like, a, I think it's a biblical quote. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading one time, how that was translated into all the other languages when it was, when her book was released in all the other countries. And they were absurd, you know, they're just absurd. I love that. All right, John, what are you reading? Although you've already dropped Tom Wolfe and Flannery O'Connor. Yeah, this is be like, not, yeah, well, not, I not read, <laughs> I read, read it earlier today. It's amazing. So <laughs> this is from the New Yorker humor section and I know we quote that a lot but like if they don't want us to quote it stop writing such good stuff you know stop being so funny and we'll stop quoting your your magazine but I I can't at this point I can't so I don't know if you know about this Liz but there is a dramatic reboot of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air what coming out called Mm. Bel-Air and it's about a Philly, a Philly kid who is like, you can, I'll, sh- I'll send you the trailer. I think the way it happened is someone made a trailer and then it kind of got went viral. They did this in 2019 and then it just got picked up for two seasons and it's coming out in early 2021. What? So I have yes. no idea about this. I can, I can read, this is the actual press release from Peacock, which is NBC's streaming platform. Bel Air is a serialized one hour dramatic analog of the 90s sitcom The Fresh Prince of Bel Air that leads into the original premise, Will's complicated journey from the streets of West Philadelphia to the gated mansions of Bel Air. So this is, this is totally true. But this article in the New York, I'm sorry, in the New Yorker is called Rebooted. And it has like a bunch of things just like that dramatic revisions of like classic television oh shows. So I'll, I'll read, I'll just read two and then you'll get the idea. First one, Hauser. This medical drama is set in a hospital of the future where the number of adult doctors has been depleted by pandemics and the broken healthcare system has, so, has been so depleted uh, that child doctors must fill the void. The hospital's jaded but seasoned chief physician, 16 year old Doogie Hauser, MD. I'm too old for this job, he growls as he struggles to save the lives of a, a life of a pregnant woman and her unborn doctor. Oh my or gosh. Lucille. To stay in the United States, Ricardo, 
a hardworking Latinx immigrant is forced to marry Lucille, a volatile racist redhead. Although they live together in a small New York apartment, they sleep in separate beds and lead separate lives. Lucille frequently conspires with her fellow Karen, a neighbor named Ethel, to thwart Ricardo's efforts to help other immigrants band together and build a better world. Oh my gosh. Oh, okay, wait, I need one more. I need one more. This is so good. Okay. How I Never Met Your Mother. Ted Mosby is a single architect looking for a soulmate. Unfortunately, he's doing this during a global pandemic, an era of Zoom calls, social distancing, terrible dating apps, and drug-resistant herpes. But this doesn't stop him from trying to find love with consistently heartbreaking results, all told in flashbacks as he sits in an empty living room talking to himself. Oh my so, gosh. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, one, is, one is just called friends, but it's friends with a question mark. Like <laughs> friends. Maybe. So, yeah. Oh my so, God. Check is, it out. What is this article? I'll send you, I'll, we'll have the link. Uh, the article is called Rebooted and it was from November 23rd. So it's, uh, it's like two issues ago. Oh my gosh, that is, there's a reason why you and I are such devotees of the New Yorker humor section. It's just so good. And just like a little last learning corner. One of the reasons why humor is such like, especially really well done humor and satire is it really teaches you the skills you need to reframe and restructure stories. Like it, it's, it's amazing. Oh my gosh. Well, this brings us to the end of our of our festive holiday time episode. I hope it was holly and jolly and filled with all of the goodness that you guys have come to expect from the content lab. But um, until then, whether you celebrate or don't, I hope everybody's staying safe this holiday season. Um, please feel free to hit me up if you have any very strong feelings about Die Hard 1 versus Die Hard 2. John, do you have any parting words for, I think this is our last show of the year, maybe our second to last? Let's, uh, let's head into 2021. I think we're, I think we've had a, we've gotten enough of 2020. It's been fine. It's been great. <laughs> I've been- Long year. Flourishing. Long year. Flourishing. And with that, I'm going to go flourish my way into some article editing. Talk to y'all next week. Bye. Bye-bye.